What can make you suddenly wake up from even the deepest of sleep? Well, that's the thing. Maybe it's a child's cry, some noise, some loud noise, some cramp or stabbing pain, something that just grabs your attention, something that just brings you wide awake and you immediately have that sense of your heart racing and it's going to be really hard to get back to sleep at that point. We've all had those moments. Book of Second Peter is meant in some respects as a wake-up call. It's meant to provoke believers awake. Second Peter 1.13, Peter says, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. When Peter says stir you up, it's literally to wake you up. It's the same language that's used in the story in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus is asleep in the boat and the storm begins to brew and the waves are beginning to come over the side of the boat, they're out on the lake, and the disciples' priority at that point is waking Jesus up. There's someone who can do something about this, and so it describes them as waking him up in Mark 4.38. Well, it's the same word. They, they wanted Jesus to stop sleeping and be fully alert to what they saw as their needs and do something. That's the language Peter uses in 2 Peter 1. It is to wake you up. It is to, to stir up Christians. And I would suggest that it is to, to wake us up, to keep us from drifting into idleness, to, to keep us from drifting into worldliness or drifting into error. What, what really concerns Peter is not so much some dramatic, massive shift in the church a wave of persecution. Certainly there, there had been persecution. Um, it was not necessarily some, um, some flood of false teaching. There already was some false teaching, and, and he's going to address that in this book. Both were real threats. But what seems to concern Peter is the danger of professing believers, those who say they trust in Jesus Christ, gradually becoming unmoored from the foundations of, of, of what it is that Believers hold fast to, um, unmoored from the foundations of the church of Jesus Christ. Certainly the culture, as it does today, in, in that century criticized and mocked Christians who, what they believed about Jesus. You, you, you think that God came in flesh. You believe that this man, Jesus, rose from the dead. You talk about living different because he's alive and coming back. How do you know any of that's true? Maybe, maybe what you believe is just myths. And the culture would cast doubts on the eyewitness testimonies about Jesus, that which was passed down through the apostles. How, how can you believe these guys? How do you know that, that, that they know what they're talking about? Do you really believe that they've seen what they say they've seen? If you look at these guys, their lives have got a fair amount of problems. They seem to go through struggles and trials themselves. Doesn't look like something worth following. And how do you know they didn't just make up these stories, that they don't just have their own agendas? And so the, the real danger was from that kind of thinking seeping into the church of Jesus Christ. The, the sort of attitude that says, well, all right, maybe they've raised some good questions. Maybe that's something to think about. Maybe some of these stories seem a little far-fetched. Maybe the apostles exaggerated here and there. Maybe the whole thing isn't completely reliable. What Peter was 
seeing 2,000 years ago is no different from challenges faced today within the church, the constant attacks on the, the gospel, on the historicity of Jesus Christ, on the authority and truthfulness of God's word. They are the same challenges that send believers today down the same rabbit holes of beginning to doubt God's word, beginning to doubt what God has said. Is the Bible really inerrant? Does what it says about sex and marriage and men and women, was that, was that a timeless truth that God's giving, or is that just something that was speaking to the culture of the day? Are we basing too much on the ideas of just some first century men? God's word through the apostle Peter is, is sending a warning to believers and addressing this drift, this, this dull thinking that opens the door to a casual faith that begins to doubt and, and, and worse yet, begins to turn and, and no longer seeks after Christ and his gospel, or as we read last week, makes every effort to grow like him, every effort to grow in the knowledge of him. We last week looked at the first 11 verses of the book of 2 Peter, and it says this, two things. God has equipped those who are trusting in Jesus Christ with everything that is needed for living a life that pleases God, all that is needed for life and godliness, so all that is needed in all circumstances to live a life that is honoring to our Savior Jesus Christ. That's the, the one part of that opening section. And then the second part is in response to that, now that you have been provided for and equipped, you make every effort to live godly lives, to, to, to cultivate fruit of self-control and virtue and godliness and brotherly affection. So God has provided, you now respond by seeking to be more like Christ. So this morning we begin with verse 12, which starts with therefore. So we know that in light of God's equipping and our called response to grow like Jesus, therefore, verse 12, Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So this morning we're going to read the, overall the rest of chapter 1. We're just going to start here in verses 12 through 15. And I would say this is really Peter expressing the urgency of this wake-up call. I am, I am trying to stir you up. And then in verses 16 to 21, he gives the, the foundation for that. How is it that I can stir you up and call you to hold fast to these truths? And he'll give two reasons down in verses 16 to 21 of, of why he, he is so urgent about this. But what Peter is is saying he is, I, I am always going to call to mind the things that I have just said. When it says these qualities, it's really these things to stir up these things. And so he's pointing back to verses 1 through 11, that those parallel truths that I am going to remind you that God has, has gifted you with faith, that he is giving you grace and power and the knowledge of himself, that he has revealed himself so you would know him. I'm going to remind you that he's doing this, and I'm also going to remind you that you and I are called to respond to that knowledge and that grace by living like Christ. I'm going to continue to tell you these things. We saw that last week. God's equipping our response, and now Peter saying, I know you know this, and that's what he says essentially in verse 12 when he says, I intend to remind you, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, Peter's commending them. It, it, it's a wonderful New Testament pattern. 
that, that we see that teaches us how to exhort and encourage as well, and that he doesn't just come in and go after them. He says, I, I already see this. I know this is happening in your life. I know you know these things. I know you're walking in them. That's what he means by being established in it. But I also know that we're human and the temptation to drift is real. The lure of the world is still relentless. The attacks on the truth of God's word will continue. They are persistent. Therefore, I will keep doing everything I can to awaken you to these truths. I will keep stirring them up. That's, that's the point of verse 13 where he says, I think it's right to stir you up. I will, I will preach these foundational truths to you until the day I die, Peter says. It's that important. Theologian Tom Schreiner put it like this. He says, reminders arouse and provoke believers, prompting them to prize the gospel afresh. Peter hoped that his words would stab the believers awake so they would reject what the opponents taught. It's a good, good assessment of verses 12 through 15. I want this to grab your attention over and over so that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of your union with Christ, that you are in Christ, and now that you are empowered by his grace and his love in order to keep growing, that those things would continue to be stirred up within you. They would continue to affect you and change you because if we're honest, our attention spans dwindle, our minds forget, and our hearts are prone to wander. And so we need to continuously be reminded of these things. We keep coming back to them. For Peter, this is also uh, clearly deeply personal because for some reason he is now at a point where he is believing that his death is imminent. He, he seems to be seeing his demise as coming very soon. We don't know where this is in terms of specific point in history, if, if he is already under some sentence from Nero um, or, or whether Jesus has revealed something else to him that, that he now knows, but he sees his departure from them as imminent. What we do know are the words of Jesus to Peter back in John 21, after, after Peter denied Jesus and Jesus reinstates Peter sort of into to ministry and he speaks to Peter in John 21. He says, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Peter already knew from early on after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kind of death that he would experience. He would die as a martyr, crucified in a manner similar to what Jesus experiences. Hands would be stretched out, as he says, signifying this kind of death. And so here in 2 Peter 1, in some sense, it's almost like a, almost like a testament, almost like something that he is wanting to leave and say, this is, this is what I want to ring in your ears. This body is about to come to its end, which means I will depart from you. So I'm doing everything in my power to leave these things with you so that you remember them, you hear them. All right, let's read on. Verse 16 then starts with four. And so what, what follows then, at verse 16 and beyond, really serves to support the wake-up call. I'm, I'm urging you, I'm reminding you, for, because, verse 16, we did not follow clever, uh, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so he said, believers, 
I'm going to remind you of these things. God has supplied everything you need to live a life that pleases him. Therefore, you are to continue to live in that manner. You are to recite these things, walk in these things, live these things. But here's the reality that, that Peter's writing into a, a specific context at this point in time. There is false teaching and the truth is under fire, particularly the truth of the return of Christ. When you look down at chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, it begins right away. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And so immediately you understand that there are those who are denying Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, blaspheming the truth. And that, Peter warns, the real danger here is it will cause many to drift. It will cause many to, to be drawn in by the ways of the false teachers and to drift away from the truth. So there's real threats for those that Peter is writing to who profess faith in Christ. That's why the wake-up call is so urgent. But Peter is saying, not only am I reminding you of these things, but I want you to understand the substance as to what, what holds these truths up that I'm, I'm reminding you of. I want, you, I want to remind you what this is all based on, and, and, and thus he now gives this foundation, not just reminding them, but saying, I don't want your confidence shaken, so let me give you two reasons why these truths I've just proclaimed to you stand. And the two reasons he gives are apostolic witness and divine revelation. Apostolic witness and divine revelation. Before we look at them, let's remember this. What was happening in Peter's day in the first century is, is no different than what is happening today and no different than attacks on God's word that go all the way back to the book of Genesis and to the Garden of Eden. If you remember, when Satan comes to Eve, he doesn't mount a full front-on assault on God and, and say to Eve, well, God's a liar. You just shouldn't believe God. Everything he says is just lies. No, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's far more subtle. What, what's the first thing that Satan says to Eve? Did God really say that? Did God actually say that? Are you sure about what you heard from God? Because maybe, maybe you misheard it. Maybe God didn't actually mean what he said. Maybe it's not quite right. Step one, leading people away from the purity of God's truth is to get them to question God's word. Did God really say that? Did God really give his law with these requirements of things that we are called to do and things we are called not to do? And did he, did he really say that those who break his law then, that the penalty is death, that there is eternal suffering for those who break it? Did he, did, did he really say that? And if, if he said that, did he really mean that? Are you sure? And that's where it begins. That's where the the sort of slippery slope. If, if you think casting doubt on the veracity of God's word, the historicity of God's truth is a new, modern sort of argument, then you haven't read the Bible or studied church history much because this has been since the garden that the question has been, can you really trust God's word? Are you sure he said that? The authority of God's word has been under attack. And so that's why verse 16, Peter begins, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing you should notice is the shift, verses 12 to 15, primary pronoun there is I. I intend to remind you as long as I am in the body, I, I see this as my responsibility. Verse 16 then shifts to we. This is, this is not just me at this point. This is Peter saying, this is not just Peter's story. This is not a one-man show at this point. I didn't come up with this. It's not my opinion. What he's referring to 
he says, is we. It has been testified to and declared by multiple accounts, multiple witnesses for decades. This is what we have seen. And so he's now referring to his fellow disciples. This is the word that is consistent from Paul. This is the word that is consistent from Jesus's brother, James. This is what John proclaims in his gospel and his letters. This is what Philip preached when he went into Samaria. This is what Matthew and Luke write about. It, it all is this one consistent theme that proclaims Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come and given his life for sinners and who died and then rose again and is coming again. In 1 Corinthians 15, writing about the, the resurrection, Paul says Jesus was crucified for sinners, dead and buried, raised on the third day. And then he describes appearing to Peter, then the 12 disciples and more than 500 of Jesus' followers at one time, then to his brother James, and all the apostles, and last of all, to Paul himself. That's why Peter shifts to we. This is not some cleverly devised myth that some guy ran off and figured out, and he was off in the woods somewhere, and he thought, this is a really great idea. I've got a religion here. Peter's saying, no, this is we. And, and that phrase, cleverly devised myths, it's not clear whether or not he's saying that's what the accusations are by the false teachers who say that what we're preaching is that, or if it's actually Peter turning it back on the false teachers and saying that what they give you is cleverly devised myths. But the, the word myth was clearly understood in the first century culture. Mythology was, was known. You, you told a story. It didn't matter whether it was historically valid or accurate, but you told a story to make a point. That's the, the idea of a myth. It has some kind of lesson to it. It's not necessarily factual. And Peter is explicit. What was preached to you about the Lord Jesus Christ was not some, some moral story meant to provoke you to certain behavior. It is what we saw. It is eyewitness testimony from, mind you, and Peter doesn't say it here, but from eyewitnesses who were under the threat of their own persecution and death for continuing to proclaim this story. Remember what happened to Jesus, and history verifies that, that the Romans crucified him. And he's saying, we continued to bear witness to what we saw with our own eyes. In chapter 3, one of the things we're going to see is that the false teachers, one of the weapons that they're using against Christian teaching is the return of Jesus Christ. By this point in time, as Peter writes, it's at least two, probably three decades from the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so the critics, the world at that point, has heard the apostles preaching for 30 years now. Jesus was crucified, risen, and he is coming again. And so that teaching is now at the stage of being mocked by outsiders who are saying, how long are you going to keep preaching this same message? How, how much longer are you going to keep telling us that Jesus is coming back? Because it's been a generation or more ago since Jesus was here, and we haven't seen him, and yet you're going to keep telling us he's coming back. Why do they attack teaching on the return of Christ? Why is that doctrine in particular the focal point here? Think about it again. Because coupled with the church's teaching about Christ's return is the day of the Lord. It is God's judgment. When Christ returns, what we see in Scripture, he returns to deliver his people. He returns to establish his kingdom in a visible, powerful way. And he returns to judge the world. All who have rejected him come under his judgment. So remember the previous verses that we read, 1 through 11. They are exhorting believers to lives of virtue, 
self-control, brotherly affection, steadfastness, all of that. If Jesus is not coming back, why do those things matter? If, if, you, can, if you can cut out the return of Jesus Christ and the bringing of his kingdom and the judging of those who oppose him, then why does it matter how we live? Jesus essentially becomes a historical figure who taught decent moral ideas about loving one another and then he's gone, but there's no facing Jesus Christ again. That's why this is so crucial. If Jesus is not returning, then all we have is today. I, I might as well live for my own pleasure and desires because I will not stand accountable before God if Jesus is not returning. So Peter is, is desperately wanting to be sure his readers understand how crucial it is that Jesus rose in glory and that he is returning, that there is certainty about that. And to do that, he starts with kind of an unusual argument. He, he takes an account from the life of Jesus that is well-documented. It's an incident that involved Peter, James and John, the brothers who were disciples, and it's reported in Matthew, Luke, and Mark, and it's not one that we would immediately on the surface think, well, I, I see the resurrection, in, or I see the return of Christ in this. But here's how Matthew recounts the story. This is from Matthew 17. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus, he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You have to believe this was a moment in Peter's life that was seared in his memory. For not only does Peter see something that has, he's never seen before and is witnessing something incredible in what's happening to Jesus, he now also sees two figures from Old Testament history, from Jewish history, and, and they are before him. And then Peter, impetuous Peter, decides this is a good time for me to speak up and offer to provide tents for these guys. And in the midst of saying that, he is interrupted by the voice of God the Father. If there was ever an instance of, of Peter going, I better stop, I better be quiet, and, and having a memorable moment, this has to be it. That word transfigured, the, the, the Greek word behind it is the, the source for our word metamorphosis, a change in form. Something transfigures, it, it changes completely before us. And so what Peter and James and John were eyewitnesses to on the mountain is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Think about this if you are Peter, James, and John. You have been with this man now for some time. You have seen Jesus in his full humanity. Now he is being transformed before your eyes. And you are seeing him in his majestic, supernatural glory. They are seeing God the Son in a way like they have never seen before. And so it was 
as, as it describes in Matthew briefly, terrifying until Jesus touched them. They are, they are seeing Jesus in matchless holiness. But the interesting thing is what Peter comes to understand over time is that that moment on the mountain was not just for instruction in the moment. It was on one hand to clearly identify that this, this man, Jesus, is uniquely God and, and you should fully understand who he is. So it, there was a lesson in the moment. But what Peter comes to understand over time is what God also did through that is he gave them a glimpse into the future. Because what Peter saw and James and John with him was, was something deeply prophetic that this Jesus who had come as a humble servant whom they would still watch surrender to the cross to give himself and to suffer and die a violent death would ultimately rise again. And when he does, he, when he returns then, the world will see this. This is the glory that people will see when Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ, returns for his people. And, and so Peter now, that's what he's writing about here in 2 Peter, is this understanding that what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration was a foretaste of the future. When Jesus Christ in all of his glory is there for all of the world to see, and all will understand that he is King of Kings. Describing the coming of Jesus, Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. There will be no doubt as to the power and glory of Jesus Christ when he returns. It, it will be demonstrated. It will be clear for all to see. It's what the Old Testament prophets look forward to. It's why the, the Jewish people sometimes were confused about the first coming of Jesus Christ because they looked past the suffering servant to the prophecies of a coming king. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, wrote, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. That's why Peter says, we saw Jesus in his power and majesty. The apostles are testifying to the fact that they received a a prophetic view of the return of Jesus Christ. They, they saw what the world will see. They saw what they had never seen before, but that we will all see one day when Jesus returns. And so apostolic witness comes first. It is the declaration of those who say, not only did we see him risen, but even as he walked among us, we saw him on this mountain and we saw him in majestic glory that is so far greater than, than any king on earth. Think again how incredible that is to sustain that testimony for decades amidst a hostile environment that believes Caesar is God and Caesar is to be worshiped and then there are other gods that are to be worshiped and how dare you proclaim this one as being the majestic Lord of power and glory, the one who is returning. One other thing just before we go on from this to the, the, the last section, um, th that word apostle, I've used it because when Peter describes we, he describes himself as an apostle back in verse 1, and I've, I've said apostolic witness. The, the, the word apostle literally simply means a sent one, one who has been delegated with a, a message, who, who is sent to go and proclaim a message on behalf of the one who has sent him. Our understanding, we believe from the New Testament, is that the use of apostle is a description of a temporary office in the early church. 
And the reason we believe that is because of what the New Testament describes in the appointment of apostles. Um, the New Testament requirements really seem to be two. Acts chapter one shows us one of them, and that is after Judas Iscariot was gone, they had to replace Judas. And so there is a gathering of the 11 disciples at that point to choose a replacement. And Acts one, verse 21 says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So you see the requirement. It is one who must have witnessed the life of Jesus Christ and primarily given witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it must be one who has seen the risen Savior and can give testimony to that. And in fact, a few chapters later, Acts 4.33 says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And so the first criteria for a New Testament apostle is having seen Jesus resurrected from the dead, having been able to say he did not simply die as a religious teacher, but he actually rose as Lord. The other criteria is in Matthew chapter 10, and that is that apostles are uniquely appointed by Jesus. The appointment in Acts chapter 1 is accomplished through Lot. It is still the, the sovereign grace of God and the appointment of the, the 12th there. But it also, in Acts chapter 10, describes Jesus calling the 12 to himself, commissioning them, giving them ministry to preach and proclaim the truth and perform signs. And in that context, Matthew 10 2 says that he calls them the, the 12 apostles. So Jesus has appointed them. It's the same thing that we see in the life of Paul when he is on the road to Damascus, and it is Jesus who appears to him. He sees the risen Jesus, and Jesus commissions him to ministry to go and proclaim the, the, the gospel. And so Paul sees the risen Savior and is sent to preach. So when we talk about New Testament apostles, we are talking about a, a, a group of men uniquely called by Jesus, having seen Jesus alive after his resurrection, and they speak then as his representative. That's why we at Grace Bible Church don't recognize apostles today. We believe that that is a foundational and temporary role in the early church on which the authority of the word ultimately is built on the teaching of the apostles. All right, with that, let's just read the last few verses here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Two reasons, two, two foundational bases, if you will, to why there's, there's this urgent wake-up call, why you can stand fast on these truths and hold fast to the return of Jesus Christ. They are apostolic witness and secondly, divine revelation. The return of Jesus is not a myth. He's made that already clear and he said, this is from the witness of the apostles, but it's because of God's revealed truth. When he says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word, He's now broadening out the we. We've gone from I to we, Peter, James, John, the apostles, to now saying we, you and I, all of us, we have more than the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. Those are reliable, but we have even more than that. We have the scriptures. We have the lamp 
of God's word, as, as, as the Old Testament refers to it, that his word is a lamp. We have the Old Testament, which clearly foretold the coming of the Messiah. And we know this because if we read in Luke chapter 24, it is the day that Jesus has risen from the grave. He is walking on the road to Emmaus. He is with two who were followers of his during his earthly ministry. And as far as they are concerned, it all ended at the crucifixion a couple of days earlier. They believe that Jesus is dead and has been buried, and they are now walking with him, and in their grief are, are somehow not able to, to, to understand the fact that they are walking with the risen Jesus. And, and, and in their grief, Jesus speaks to them in Luke 24, and he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures you have, the, the, the words of, from Moses through the prophets that we would call the Old Testament foretold the Messiah that they spelled out the coming of God's chosen one, going all the way back to Genesis 3 and the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, all the way up through the prophets tell us, there is one coming, anointed by God, who will die. And he will die as a perfect substitute for the sin of his people. But, he says, not only was it necessary that the Christ should suffer, but he also says in, in Luke 24, 26, and enter into his glory. That, that's the part where he's saying to them, not only did you know if you read the Old Testament prophets that, that the Christ would die, but there's more to come because he then goes on and enters into his glory. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's the promise of the return of Christ. That's the promise that says this one who dies as a suffering servant will return in glory and power and majesty. He will come to deliver his people, establish his kingdom, and to judge the world. And so Peter's message to his readers is, the world is very dark, but we're not in darkness. We're, we're not confused about these things. We've not been left in the dark. The light of God's word has proclaimed, has promised the coming of God's Messiah. And in fact, it is promising a day that will dawn in brilliant light. Jesus is returning. And when he does, the true morning star rises. And in fact, he uses the description here of rises in your heart and, and, and what he's saying there is, yes, you have the witness of the apostles that Jesus is returning. Yes, you have scripture that foretells Jesus is returning. When Jesus returns, we won't need those anymore. We will now know fully. We will see what we've already known to be true. And we will now know in our hearts that the morning star has risen, that Jesus has returned. You will know it. Peter then goes a step further. Verses 20 and 21. And he declares that, the prophecies on which he's basing this, the Old Testament scriptures that declare his return, are not man-made. They're not the inventions of men. Again, he's, he's pushing back on the whole cleverly devised myths. And, and, and his point is that the prophet's promises of a savior 
had they been orchestrated by men, would have been an incredible thing going back to Moses all the way through the end of the Old Testament uh, and, and through Malachi, that somehow all of this coordinated effort over more than a thousand years would have all come together and all proclaimed the same thing, that, that, that this anointed one is coming. And he says it, it wasn't some grand orchestrated scheme over time. This was the work of God. In fact, he says, no true prophecy originated in the heart of men. What's in scripture is the work of God's spirit leading human authors, carrying human authors in such a way that the final outcome is the word of God. So that I, I stand here with great confidence and say, I am proclaiming to you, this is what the Lord says. This is what his word says. Verse 21 says they were carried along by the spirit. It's a nautical term. The idea of, of, of a ship that's being carried along by the, the wind in its sails. The, the, the wind comes and pushes it along. And, and the picture is really what Jesus uses in John chapter 3 when he describes the work of the Holy Spirit. Even though you can't see the wind, you sometimes hear it. You don't always know where it's coming from, but you see its effect. As, as the wind has its effect, it, it moves things and it, it moves whatever it touches. What he's describing here is the Holy Spirit carrying along the human authors of Scripture so that what we have as a result is the very word of the living God. Friends, when, when the word of God comes under attack, inevitably, someone will say, these are just men's ideas. This is just an, another man-made religion. Somebody wrote a book. You believe it. I got a book. I believe it. They're just books. We could spend a whole sermon series on just evidences concerning Scripture and the, the manuscript and fragment evidence for the Scriptures that is that not comparable with any other ancient piece of literature by a long stretch. That what we have of Scripture in terms of the amount of fragments and documents and what we have in terms of the closeness of those documents, manuscripts, to the actual writing is so far above anything we have for any ancient piece of literature that you would have to dismiss all ancient literature and say, well, it's just all made up somehow. Um, We've got the testimony of the church, and, and, and I would close with this, that throughout the 2,000-year history of Christ's church, believers have understood that God's word claims for itself the authority of the creator. It claims to be the uniquely inspired, written word of God. It is his revelation. And so Peter speaks for the, the human authors of the Bible when he says, we are like vessels, through, through which God spoke. We're, we are his messengers. We didn't imagine these things. We saw them. We didn't devise these things. They were revealed to us by the Spirit of God or, in fact, by Jesus himself in that what we heard him teach. And God himself is ultimately the one who promised that he would send a Messiah. And that Messiah would come to bear the sins of those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. He would pay the price fully on the cross so that we who put our faith in him can be saved, forgiven, rescued, given eternal life. And he promised that this Savior would return. He would rise from the grave and he would return in glory. Therefore, while we live out this life, we live for him. Therefore, now we, we make every effort to live godly lives because the promise of his return should change how we live today. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the consistency of the, the theme of man's fall into sin and the work of redemption. That's laid out first in, in Genesis chapter 3. It's already clear that there is need for a Savior. And then all throughout church history, we see, all throughout the history of Israel, we see these pictures of the need of a Savior, the one who would rescue his people, the one who would come on the throne of David and who would become a king who would be on that throne forevermore, the one who would come as a lamb laying down his life for his sheep, who would suffer at the hands of men and suffer their evil and bear the wrath of sin, your wrath of of judgment against that sin, and that he would then in glory rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. And Lord, in glory one day return. We continue to look forward to that day. We join with Peter. Help us to refresh our minds on these things, to refresh ourselves about the gospel and the truths we believe and who we are in Christ. Help us to continue to have these, these words ringing in our ears. Lord, so that they would change the way we live, that they would change what we prioritize, what we desire, what we live for, that we might live in the light of the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.